right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. How many people here, Grayson? Amen, amen. You guys open your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9, be starting in verse 35. Um, if you've been with us for a while, we've been going verse by verse through this, uh, this incredible gospel of John. And believe it or not, this is the 35th message of the series. Uh, which puts us right around the halfway point, I estimated. So we'll have about 70 hours in John when we're done with this. And uh, though the Gospel of John is certainly extensive in the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ, um, an in-depth look into prayer is still a ways off uh, for us uh, in John. And so as the needs of the church do arise, um, we may jump off from time to time. Um, to go into a more focused teaching of um, what that particular topic or uh, need might be. And there is no doubt as we uh, navigate in these last days, uh, prayer is an essential part of the Christian walk. So in two or three weeks from now, Lord willing, um, we're going to jump out at John for maybe just a couple weeks or so. I believe Pastor Rick is doing a, a, some uh couple weeks in prayer and, and Katie's got her uh, monthly uh, women's meeting that they'll be doing in prayer. So hopefully we can get a better um, biblical understanding of the power and authority that we do in fact have in prayer and the power of Christ and just exactly what prayer is and what prayer isn't and how the effective fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. And um, I think we would all say that we'd like to have a more powerful and effective prayer life. Amen? <laughs> uh, in fact, if you've been with us uh, for a while, you know as a church, we grew immensely during our series Pray. It was probably about 18, 20 months ago now. Some of you who've been even longer probably remember one of my all-time favorite series. We did Dangerous Prayers. Uh, dangerous Prayers as we uh, really uh, did prayers uh, that pushed us out of our comfort zone. Uh, Psalm 139, search me. Um, other prayers, break me, send me. Um, and so, um, excited to do that in a few weeks. But this morning we turn our attention back to um, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John and this miraculous story of the man born blind. Uh, now, over the last two weeks we've covered verses 1 through 34. Um, today we'll finish the chapter in verses 35 to 41. And uh, I broke this chapter essentially down into three units. This is the third week of preaching. First was the account of the physical healing itself, verses 1 through 12. Jesus sees a man blind from birth. It's not an accident that Jesus sees the man or that he was born blind for that matter. Rather, Jesus said, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not because of a direct sin that this man was born blind. Uh, and it was um, more of that, that random result of the fall that they would say, but this man has been, in, in fact, divinely and purposefully set apart for this miraculous work by our Lord Dave, uh, Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world. However, last week we found out Jesus once again performed this healing yeah, that's right, on the Sabbath. And this led to the second section I preached through last week, which we essentially saw an interrogation of the man himself, his parents, the, the neighbors. I mean, at this point, what would a miraculous story be without the Pharisees, right? They, of course, crashed the party. Instead of seeing this as a miraculous sign from their long-awaited Messiah, as Isaiah spoke about in the prophets, and celebrated this miracle with joy, they hardened their hearts further as they tried to intimidate the man from testifying to this amazing thing that God has done in our midst. Their blindness is truly frightening. Well, this section ended with the man boldly um, standing on the side of Christ, and then we um, read that they threw him out of the synagogue. So now as we come to this last section of the text, we see there's more going on here than just a physical healing. And as Jesus re-enters the story here in verse 35, he provides for us a, a 
parable type teaching that sums up this entire chapter for us. So let's read these verses through, once all the way through, and then after we can look at each one of them a little bit closer. We'll read John chapter 9, starting in verse 35. This is what the Bible says. Jesus heard that day, this is the Pharisees, that they had put him out. This was the blind man being kicked out of the, the temple. And finding him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Wow, what a way to end a chapter. <laughs> this gospel never stops amazing me. You know, the Gospel of John is really so unique. I mean, think about it. By reputation, it's considered sort of the easiest to read of the Gospels. It's usually the first Gospel that's recommended to somebody. In its simplest form, it's God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have not perish but have eternal life. I mean, <laughs> cuts right to the heart. It's so simple. So beautiful, pure. And then there are these subtle little words. These couple of verses that, that Jesus just goes and sticks in there. <laughs> like right here at the end of chapter 9 that seasoned scholars lose their hair over. <laughs> because of the depths that Jesus' words go to. And John's gospel, it seems to me at least, captures a, a little more of this stuff than, than the other synoptic gospels do. So you can be challenged by this gospel over and over uh, again. Or it could be your very first time reading it and it'll just blow your doors off. <laughs> I've been telling you here, you'll be tempted to just read chapter 9 as a miracle. Just another miracle story. Most of you have probably just read this and haven't really paused on it much and just went right by to John chapter 10. But Jesus says at the end of this chapter here, hold on there. Hold on. Uh, if you read this chapter over, yes, it's a story about a man who was born blind and is being healed. But it's also a picture of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. It's a story of salvation. And this shouldn't surprise us. In fact, throughout all of scripture, um, blindness is certainly used metaphorically. To represent fallen man's inability to comprehend God's truth. In Isaiah chapter 43 verse 8. The prophet referred to Israel as the people who are blind even though they have eyes. In Jeremiah the prophet chapter 5 verse 21. He declared judgment upon Israel by saying now hear this. O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see. Uh, Isaiah also portrayed the corrupt spiritual leaders of Israel as watchmen who are blind. All of them know nothing. In fact, centuries later, in Matthew chapter 15 and elsewhere, Jesus would also denounce the religious leaders of his day, calling them blind men and blind guides. The blind leading the blind into a pit. We're told in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, that our Lord Jesus Christ sends the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that may, they may turn from darkness to light. Which was necessary because as Ephesians 4, verse 18 tells us, 
they too are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Wow. In Revelation chapter 3, the risen Christ in the seven letters to the seven churches also warned of spiritual blindness even in the church. You'll remember he rebuked the lukewarm congregation in Laodicea with these words. He says, because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish Pharisee, a, a Gentile, a pagan nation, or those only professing to be a Christian in the church. No one is exempt from spiritual blindness. And if our own sinful nature wasn't blinding enough, there's almost a double blinding that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world, speaking of Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The unbelieving are both naturally blinded by their sin nature and satanically blinded by the devil. Those who willfully reject Jesus and continue to walk in their natural state of blindness may also find that God judicially blinds them, giving them over to the darkness that they so love. Paul talked about this in Romans 1. He said, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Writing to those who worshiped idols, Isaiah said, they do not know nor do they understand why. For God smeared over their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts cannot comprehend. Ooh. Those who persistently refuse to believe, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, as Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Natural blindness is damning, but terminal blindness as the judgment from God is the removal of all hope. But thanks be to our God, for our Lord is gracious and is full of compassion, Psalm says. He is slow to anger and great in his mercy. God told Adam, the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. Adam ate and he lived for 930 years. God said, I'm going to destroy the world with a, with a flood. But before destruction came, God established a preacher named Noah who preached of righteousness and preached of judgment. He called for repentance for 120 years. Patience of our Lord. But the only cure for spiritual blindness is saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, when God talks about the Messiah, he talks about the Messiah coming to bring a great light. Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah 29, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 42, uh, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
So the Messiah not only would give physical sight to the blind, but he would, he would be the light who would then shine light on them. In Isaiah 49, this is what God the Father said of the Messiah. Is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see the Messiah is the one who will bring light. He will bring light to this entombed, dark world. The light will shine when the Messiah comes. And so as the gospel opens up, the gospel of John, what does John 1 say? He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that initial introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation is a light shining out into the darkness, just as the prophet said it would be. And what was Jesus' announcement in John chapter 8 during the Feast of Tabernacles? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says it again in John chapter 9. I am the light of the world. John chapter 12, verse 46. Jesus will say, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Light, darkness, light, darkness. And Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry in Capernaum, talks about the, the Lord fulfilling all that the prophet Isaiah had said. In verse 16 of uh, Matthew chapter 4, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. So we see throughout scripture the Messiah arriving and he's bringing light to places of darkness. Those who were sitting in the land of death, these are depictions. They are blind to their condition. They're just sitting there in the darkness as the darkness surrounds them. But in comes this marvelous light, our Lord Jesus Christ. So then when we see, when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica of true believers, he says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for you are all children of light, children of the day. There we go. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Children of light, children of the day. You, children of God, you are not of the night or of the darkness. So all of this was to give you a sense uh, that God in his divine purposes has designed to use blindness and darkness as a metaphor for the spiritual condition. So now when we come to texts like these in John 9, we now recognize some of these themes, verses 1 through 34. It's about physical light and physical sight. But we also see all throughout there, there's obvious overtones of spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness manifested by these Pharisees. So when we come to verses 35 to 41, the subject changes from physical sight, physical light, to spiritual sight. And uh, I broke these verses up into just two easy sections for us. We'll see the spiritual sight in verses 35 to 38. This is given to the blind man. And then spiritual darkness in verses 39 to 41, which the Pharisees remain in. So let's look at this 
first section of our text in John chapter 9 as Jesus gives spiritual light to this once blind beggar. And notice that spiritual sight requires divine initiation. Spiritual sight requires divine initiation. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. Think about this just for a second. Here's a man who has been an outcast his entire life. I mean, if his parents cared for him, would he have been a beggar? I don't think so. This man is a man then who is likely abandoned by his own family. Blindness was certainly considered unclean, sinful. So his parents may have deserted him. He's never had anybody respect him. Nobody's cared about him. He's at the bottom rung of society. He's a blind beggar. And now he's on top of the world. This man, Jesus, a man sent from God, has healed my eyes. He's healed me. No, no one has ever done anything like this before, he had said, remember. And, and now he's being banished from the one place that he knew he would go to go worship God and be in the presence of God. And yet, look what happens. Jesus heard. <laughs> this is so great. This is Psalms 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them. The Lord, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We see that. So Jesus heard that they had put him out. And notice what it says there. And finding him. I'd mark that if I was you. I'd circle that. Jesus finds him. You see, Jesus takes the initiative. The, the light of the world comes onto the scene and he shines light into the darkness. Spiritual sight requires divine initiation. If God doesn't take the initiation in opening blind eyes, no one would be saved. What did the Bible say? We, we are blinded by our sin. We are blinded by the God of this world. We have a double blinding that's happening. We need divine initiation. So here's the point. If you have spiritual eyes, if you can see the truth, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's because Jesus came after you. Jesus initiated your salvation. And this whole thing is a picture of this. Jesus will show us this step by step, but... John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you and you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And we see this in the story. It's Jesus who tracks the man down. It's if God doesn't take the initiative in salvation, no one would be saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 11 tells us there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Wow. Luke chapter 19, 10, Jesus tells us what he's come to do. He says, for the Son of Man has come, notice, to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the miracle of regeneration. This is John 3 all over again. Yes, you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you put your trust in him. But it was only after he found you first. And he dropped those scales just like Paul off of his eyes. Paul's another picture of the man blind, physically blind, spiritually blind. God blinds him. He needs those scales to come off. So he takes those scales off your blind eyes and he gives you spiritual sight to see. First John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Before God gave me eyes to see this amazing book of truth, it sounded <laughs> just like Paul says, foolishness to me. I'd read a couple of verses, this doesn't make any sense to me. And eight years later, it's the greatest thing that I've ever read, and I wanted to know it so I could teach it and share it with everyone. Without Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit, none of this made any sense. Remember Lydia. Lydia in Acts chapter 16, a woman named Lydia, 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord, look at this, opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was speaking about, spoken about. So it's God that does this supernatural work. He opened her heart so she could respond to the words of Paul. So if you've been born again by God's grace, it's because Jesus sought you out. Jesus found you. Jesus found you, the, the blind man who was healed physically and soon will be healed spiritually, took no pride in himself for his healing. How could he? He, could, he couldn't do any of this himself, right? Just like every sinner, he realized it was all from the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have been saved, it's because there's a divine initiative in the mind of God. And that's why Jesus gets all of the glory, all of the glory. Now, after we see this divine initiation, we see the second characteristic of spiritual sight, the revelation. The revelation. Verse 35b, just the second half of it now. And Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? <laughs> Jesus is asking the most important question that this man will ever be it's a question that no one can ignore. Do you believe in the Son of Man? We, we must all answer this question. Now, first of all, what does that term Son of Man mean? Um, if you have an old King James Bible or, or the NKJV, they, they translate it as um, Son of God. But the oldest and most reliable trans, um, manuscript translates this to Son of Man. And the reason it is the son of man is because it emphasizes, and John does this more than I think any of the gospels, the humanity and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, this is the title that Jesus actually used most to identify himself as. No one else has ever claimed to use this term. <laughs> no one else walks around saying, I am the son of man. Nobody. In fact, Jesus used this term of himself in the Gospels, the four of them combined, about 80 times. The Son of Man is a messianic title. It is drawn from Daniel chapter 7, which prophesizes the, the Messiah's coming and then his eternal kingdom. In Daniel 7, the prophet says, And I saw in the night visions. Remember, God gifted him with the, the ability to interpret dreams and visions. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and he presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Amen. This is a prophecy that Daniel sees 600 years before Jesus Christ's incarnation, before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> this is not the Father. This is the one who comes to the Father. This is the one who the Father gives this eternal, everlasting kingdom. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God, which is a prophecy that he will be incarnate, that he will take on human flesh, Son of Man. And now we see Jesus apply this title to himself. As he has left his throne in heaven and come to earth to free his people from spiritual darkness, one soul at a time. This title also has to do with him becoming a man. In his incarnation, Jesus becomes fully man, and yet he remains fully God. The Son of Man, Jesus, is God's revelation in human flesh that came to this earth to be the suffering servant and for man to know God. That's the Son of Man. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, 
full of grace and truth. That is why Jesus used it so much as he wanted us to understand that he has come and he took on flesh. He walked the same earth we did. And on that cross, he has taken our place. Now, move down to verse 36. Look at what this man says. This is simply amazing. And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? (laughs) What a... What an amazing statement this is. This is a man who is ready to believe. He just wants to know who to believe in. This is the inside working of a heart prepared by God. The Spirit of God has opened this man's heart to the truth. This man who who is ready to believe, he just wants to know who to believe in. That's a prepared heart. That's good soil. That is good soil. Now, now this uh, word Lord here is interesting. Um, he doesn't know who Jesus is, right? So, so he's not using it Lord as in the uppercase sense, lowercase. Uh, it's the word uh, kurios in the Greek. It's, it's the same word that we do see used down in verse 38 here. But in this context, it's better translated as sir. It's, it's, it's a term of like a respect or a courtesy, old English, sir and lady. Who is he, sir, that, that I may believe in him? Remember, this man has yet to see him. Jesus left when he came back and he could finally see him. He, he's yet to identify who he is. But, but this is a man's heart who is, he's, he's being opened and all he wants to know who who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And this can only be explained as a supernatural work of God. Again, uh, this is not some kind of a rational decision where, where you've convinced this guy based on a set of facts. Oh, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit has enabled him to believe. And this man's blind spiritual eyes are, are, are now being primed to be fully opened. It, this is amazing. That brings us to, to number three, as spiritual sight results in worship. Spiritual sight always results in worship. Look at verse 37. This, this just gets more amazing by the verse. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is one who is talking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. This is a divine miracle from God. Lord, I believe. Now, now I don't know what he might have heard or, or what he knew before this. Um, I think it's probably sufficient for him that Jesus had already healed him physically. He probably, uh, at least through the miracle. But we saw last week, he, he had already declared that he, he, he must be a, a prophet from God. No one can do the things that he, that he does. He must be heard by, by God. God doesn't hear sinners, remember that? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We saw him say that. And if a prophet from God says, I am the Son of Man, I am the long-awaited Messiah, that's enough for this guy. His heart's been prepared. He's ready to believe. So he says in verse 34, Lord, I believe. I believe. And now Lord gets an upper case designation here. He's gone from sir to Lord of Lords. (laughs) This is Lord in the fullest. This is Lord in the most loftiest and the most elevated of sense. Lord, I believe. And and even though the word is the same, there's there's a huge difference. When he says, Lord, in verse 36, he's he's asking a question. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now he says, uh, I believe. And he says, Lord, in a completely different sense, because he immediately does what? He worships him. 
worships him. How, how do you know when spiritual sight comes to someone? It's initiated by God. Uh, the heart is prepared with the truth. God reveals himself to him, and they confess that Jesus is what? Lord. Lord. A, uh, whew. We can all relate to this story. Can't we? I hope you can relate to this story. If this doesn't tear your heart up, you better ask God to open your eyes. A poor beggar. We all are. He had seen nothing all of his life. And now he sees physically, but more importantly, now he sees clearly the Son of Man. Lord. He's gazing on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's been given sight. He can see. And it's all in that simple statement right there in verse 38. That whole thing should just be circled for you. And he worshipped him. That, that's the whole of, of what it is to be a believer, essentially, in one verse right here. Verse 38. It's all there. Lordship, faith, worship. Think back to our, our time uh, in John chapter 4. Jesus said the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking. The Father is looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. How do you know when someone's a true believer? Because he's become a worshiper. A true worshiper. It's not because you prayed a prayer. It's not because you got baptized. It's not because you got moved one Sunday morning. It's because your heart's been, been prepared and you've become a worshiper. A worshiper, this word for worship, pros, uh, proskoneo, means to give reverence to, means to bow down. It literally means to fall on one's knees in adoration. And I'm sure that's what th this man did. He fell on his knees in adoration for his Lord and Savior, and he said, Lord, I believe. of a genuine transformation from spiritual darkness to glorious light. So that completes this first section of spiritual sight. I spent most of our time there. Let's just now look quickly as Jesus completes this dialogue, and he's going to give us the flip side of the coin. He's going to show us what spiritual sight looks like. Now he's going to show us what spiritual blindness looks like. He, he's comparing this humble confiding, trusting, believing heart of a beggar with this hostile, stubborn, hardened heart of the Pharisees. This is un unbelievable. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Wow. Ooh. Now when Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, uh, Students of the Bible might be thinking, wait a minute here, wait a minute here. I, I think I've heard the reverse of this somewhere before. It, it appears at first glance he's contradicting what he said back in John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3 for a moment. Just turn, turn a few pages back to John chapter 3 so you can see this. We'll look at just a couple of verses real quickly. But John chapter 3 verse 17 This is the verse that we went through, so this might be the verse that you're thinking of as a contradiction. It says in verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to what? To judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? Pretty clear there. Chapter 9, he's saying, For judgment I came into the world. So, so what's he mean here then? First, both of these are true, and they don't contradict each other. They they. They essentially are two sides of the same reality. Yes, Jesus came to save the world and not to condemn the world. For example, uh, just stay in chapter 3, but let me just show you on the screen real quick. For example, in John chapter 12, verse 47, the Lord says again, If anyone hears my sayings 
These are his words, his teachings, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So, so he's talking primarily about the gospel here. He's saying those who hear his message, okay, they hear the gospel message, and they don't receive it. They reject it. So he's saying, while I'm here on earth, I do not judge those who are rejecting the gospel. I'm on a mission not to judge, but to seek and to save that which is lost. So if you're still in, in chapter 3 of John, look down at, at the next verse in verse 18. Jesus goes further into explaining this for us. Jesus said, he who believes in him is not judged. Okay, that's consistent with what he's already said. He who does not believe has been judged already. Wow. Why? Because he has not believed in the name. If you do not believe, you condemn yourself. They subject themselves to the judgment. And, and yet, even though he, he came in his incarnation, he's come to save. His salvation itself then becomes a dividing reality. There's two, only two roads, no matter how, how you slice it. It's like uh, Simeon said at the Lord's dedication, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of men, right? Jesus, very dividing, very divisive, we've said. Now, this is not a final judgment. This is kind of immediate ju judgment that happens when the gospel has been introduced or when here in the story Christ is presented. Christ is on the scene. He's here. There is a dividing that takes place between the, the believer and the unbeliever. One believes, one, one doesn't believe. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 3, verse, verse 19, this is the judgment. Ah, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. We love our sin. Jesus says they, they love their sin. Light came into the world to dispel the darkness. Instead, instead of looking upon the light, they, they pull the shades and live in the darkness rather than the, the men love the darkness rather than light. That's why man rejects Christ. They love their sin. We love our sin. It's like a virus that spreads until the entire body and mind and spirit become infected. Men love their darkness. So back to John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world so that, now this is powerful, those who do not see may see. Oh, well, we know who that is. That, that, this is the comparison. This is the blind beggar. He did not see. The Lord came, so now he sees. And that those who see, here's the judgment, may become blind. Wow, again. So Jesus is, is summing up this entire story, this, this entire chapter 9 account of the blind beggar and the Pharisees. It's been a story back and forth. We've seen those who do not see. That's the beggar. Jesus says, I have come into this world so you can see. I have come for people like you so you can see, blind beggar. He recognizes his need for sight. The Son of Man appears, and he says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe? That, that's the posture of the blind man. We see humility in the man as he recognizes, I, I've been healed physically, but, but I still need to be healed spiritually. Lord, show me who to believe in. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they've had Jesus for three years. Three long years. He, He's been crying out, I am the light of the world. In the middle of their biggest ceremonies, their biggest celebrations. We've seen him over and over again in John chapter 9, confronting, revealing himself to the Pharisees. In truth, not in condemnation, seeking the lost. We've seen invitation after invitation. I am the light of the world. You teachers of the law, look, look in your writings. They're all about me. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. 
Their great prophet Isaiah said that he would open blind eyes, that the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised, the good news would be preached. And yet these religious leaders who had the covenants, who had the prophets, who had the scriptures, who had the adoptions, who had the glory and the worship and the promises of God, they had all of this and yet they are blind to the Son of Man. I mean, they look at Christ, and, and we've already seen it. When they look at Christ, they see the devil. How much blinder can you be? You come working in the power of the devil. What? This is why Jesus said in John 3, this is the judgment. You want judgment? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love their darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And now here in John 9, he says, this is the judgment that those who see will actually become blind. Those who are arrogant, who see already, who have no need for a Messiah. Well, this conversation continues as we finish up in verse 40 and 41, as some of the Pharisees are apparently still keeping tabs on Jesus, or maybe they're following the man that they just threw out, but the Pharisees reappear. Remember, they, they threw the man out of the synagogue. But verse 40 says, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? They say this with, with pride and disdain in, in the Greek. What, what, what they're really saying is, is, surely you're not saying we are spiritually blind, are you? After all, we are, we are the elite, the most religious. We are the self-proclaimed experts of the law. And on top of that, we are disciples of Moses. <laughs> right? We've seen that. How dare you accuse us of being blind? Oh, we're the chosen people of God. Who are you? We don't even know where you're from. And Jesus looks them straight in the eye. And he says in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Since the Pharisees were unwilling to acknowledge their blindness, but rather claimed to see, they remained hardened and unforgiven. They could not plead ignorance. Their sins remain. First Peter 5 5, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is continuing this play on words, this 41, uh, on the notion of blindness. But Jesus is using this term in a completely different way than he used it before. In verse 40, you are blind. You are blind in the sense that you don't see your sin. You are blind, but then in verse 40, you're not blind. What's he mean? He means you're not blinded from the truth. You, you are without excuse. The, the truth is staring at you. The truth is in your presence. You are not innocent. You stand condemned. Wow. You've heard my words. You've seen my miracles. You have no excuse. Yes, blind to your own sin. No, not blind to the truth. Not blind to the truth. Spiritual blindness then receives judgment. It, it refuses to admit its blindness. It rejects the offer of light. You remain in, your sin remains. Your sin remains. You are accepting the condition that you're in. Your spiritual blindness, you have no sight. You are doomed. It is hopeless. This is an amazing play on words. Your sin remains. Finality. So the light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot extinguish it. Can't, can't overwhelm it. The darkness cannot put it out, but the darkness rejects it. He came to his own, his own refused him not. 
He's in the world. The world was made through him. The world, everything in the world was made by him. The world knew him, though. They are the religious elite. They are in darkness. And a blind beggar, he's a total outcast. He's physically, but more important, he's spiritually. Wow. We're uh, never given the name of this beggar. And I can't help but think it's because maybe the Lord wants us to insert our name into this story. We're all blind. We're all blinded by sin. We're all blinded by the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4. Our greatest need in this world is spiritual sight. There's nothing better and there's nothing more important. The most important question you'll ever answer is the question we saw earlier in our story. Do you believe? Do you believe? The Bible says you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If Jesus hasn't opened your blind eyes, cry out to him now, today. Ask him, Lord, open my blind eyes. I recognize I've sinned against a holy and just and perfect God. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And that you trust in the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary as he paid for those sins. What a Savior. What a Savior. Ask him for a new heart today. If that's your prayer this morning or, or you need the, the prayers of the church, um, we'd love to pray with you. We'll have men and women down front here. Um, the rest of you can please stand as we sing the song of invitation. Worship team is leading us in this last one. Thank you. <laughs>